A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war der Brüder in Amerika. So kalt und schabend at das Gitarre. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in the Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish history soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish history soundbites, and uh, this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously in honor of the listeners of Jewish history soundbites. You heard that, listeners? This one is for you. And uh, it's very apropos to this great community of Jewish History Soundbites listeners to have uh, uh, this episode dedicated in your honor. Uh, I want to first start off with an apology for not having uh, put out an episode for a while. I was out on on some trips to Europe, and um, actually it was a great trip. There's it was the one of them uh, just now came back last week from the, the Chestnut Shul in Lakewood. Uh, great trip. So <laughs> been recovering from that uh, to Poland. We went all over from Rimenov right after Mendel of Rimenov's yard site to Lezhensk and everything in between. We even had a powerful moment at the crematorium of Auschwitz when a participant of the trip made a seum in memory of the six million while he was wearing his grandfather's uh, inmate cap from the camp, an original uh, inmate cap, um, and it was in the pouring rain. It was it was a very great moment. I never had that on a group before, that someone wore his um, survivor grandparents' uh, 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 article of their clothing. And then we had a Kelmale from another participant that tore through the skies. It was a very, very powerful trip. And, uh, and then, of course, everyone is here for Shavuos in Israel. And so I've been taking around people on walking tours of the old neighborhoods of Yerushalayim and some Kibbutz Tzadikim all over. And it's been a lot of fun. So, um, unfortunately, I neglected the uh, podcast a little bit. But we're back and um, we're going to have, it's been hectic, but did not have a standard episode prepared. So we're going to do something a little bit different this time some musings about Shavuos and Jewish history and some little short tributes of some recent historic passings in the Jewish world. Um, and I hope to get back on track uh, with normal and consistent episodes for the great uh, um, summer uh, season. We'll have uh, weekly episodes, very interesting topics. There's a lot of stuff already in line. So stay tuned in Jewish History Soundbites. There will be a lot of great content coming on a weekly basis um, right after Shavuos. 
Um, also, for once we're once we're talking about Shavuos and the busy season and the hectic times, so in the Mishpacha magazine for Shavuos, if you haven't gotten it already, then run out today and get it before Shavuos. First of all, there is a excellent, excellent article by my colleague uh, Davi Safir, um, which I helped out with a little bit, but it was actually researched and written entirely almost entirely by him and very modest contribution uh, myself and about Rabbi Dr. Leo Jung, a fascinating article, and he did some very, very original and creative research, Davi, so I recommend you read that as well. And uh, he and I, of course, have our extended for the record feature in Mishpacha Magazine's Shavuos edition, and it's about the hundred year, the centennial of the dedication of the building of the MTJ Yeshiva on the Lower East Side. And uh, if I might say so myself, I think it's an interesting column as well. So there's lots of great stuff out there um, in Jewish history. And before we get to some musings that I had about the holiday of Shavuos in Jewish history, I'd first like to make some several tributes uh, to some recent passings uh, um, in the Jewish world. First of all, Rav Simcha Kuk, an incredible personality, the Rav of uh, Rehovot, very um, endearing personality, the very interesting life. He, of course, is from the family of Rav Kuk. He was a great nephew, um, a rabbinic family, um, and he was, uh, for decades, the Rabbi of Rehovot. He oversaw the yeshiva there, which his younger brother um, is the Rosh Yeshiva of, and uh, um, a very... Uh, uh, um, creative personality who you know crossed many boundaries in who he and how he related to the different segments of Israeli society within the religious world in the general society a very interesting uh, person. We also had the recent passing also of Rav Pinchas Stolper of the NCSY and the OU where he served in leadership positions of both for decades and decades a a very uh, important leader in the renaissance of orthodoxy and traditional Jewish life across the United States with his activities in pioneering the work of NCSY in the 50s and 60s, and then later on also in the OU throughout the 20th and early 21st century. Most of all, um, just yesterday, the passing of Uri Zohar, a fascinating personality. He really deserves a full-length a tribute episode because he was a really a, a fascinating person and a special person, a, a bit of a microcosm, especially his earlier life of the story of Israeli society in the 60s and 70s, and then um, his own personal journey of this uh, amazing journey that he transformed his lifestyle and uh, embraced uh, religious observance, and uh, in general that might be a reflection of how he he you know he he kind of foreshadowed the teshuva movement in in the state of Israel um, as a whole, um, which took place in the primarily seventies and eighties. He he um, he embraces religious observance publicly in nineteen seventy seven. He's in the uh, early stages of that movement. The Israeli culture scene in the nineteen sixties and seventies is quite an interesting story in itself. It's this emerging Tel Aviv scene uh, of, of the culture, of, of the first radio, then TV, the Israeli film industry, music, Israeli rock is just 
starting off then um, in, the, in the whole entertainment world. And what was interesting, what was happening in, in that, during that time was that this was these were Tel Aviv-born individuals who were creating it, which is different than the generation prior. The original uh, um, uh, culture of Jews in the land of Israel, uh, first Palestine and then the state of Israel, were was primarily created by Russian and Polish immigrants to 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 the country, um, and it's and here it's different. Here it's native-born. It's also different than the post-war immigrants, such as Ephraim Kishon, who came from Hungary, and of course is one of the greatest comics uh, and uh, uh, comedians, directors in, in Israeli history. But still, he's he's European, and it's a different, you know, somewhat of a different style. Even though his reflections on Israeli life during that time were fascinating, very insightful and hilarious. But these this group of Tel Aviv-born individuals of the 1930s, who emerged in the 1950s and 60s, were uniquely Israeli and even more so Tel Avivian, a very um, male, Ashkenazi, and secular uh, Israeli culture uh, that's, uh, that uh, comes about. And to an extent, they're the creators of the modern Israeli entertainment uh, scene. Um, so Uri Zohar is right in the center of that, born in Tel Aviv, Two Polish Jewish immigrants, of course. He and his friends um, are, you know, Chaim Topol and um, uh, Shaika Ophir, Eric Einstein. Like these are the the legendary names of of Israeli music and film and theater and and, and all that. They they are um, somewhat of a Bohemian bunch also. And Urizor is one of the leaders of this bunch. And then the shock of someone. From that society, um, a leader in that society, an initiator, a creator, embracing religious observance and transforming their lifestyle, uh, was was you know created big waves in in Israeli society in the 1970s. At the time that he did it, he later would write a book in Hebrew, was translated to English, and enjoyed immense popularity. In English, it's called "My Friends, We Were Robbed." Where he writes a very strong indictment of uh, of uh, the the, uh, the secularist society of his youth um, and the you know, the pleasure seeking and uh, uh, shallowness, uh, you know, bohemian uh, lifestyle, um, and he um, very strong, very sharply worded, and a very influential book. Also, my friends, we were robbed. He maintains a relationship with his friends from that world, uh, especially Eric Einstein, who becomes his mechutten. Eric Einstein is, is you know, one of the greatest uh, artists in Israeli history, in music, and in, uh, in, co- in comedy, and everything. Zar himself traversed different areas of the entertainment industry. He was one of Israel's first, maybe the first, stand-up comedian. He was in radio. When Israeli TV emerged, he moved to TV. He was a filmmaker and actor, so he did directing and acting. He won many awards. Um, he started a, a group called Chavurat Lul, which was, like I said, this group of friends who were who were this uh, you know cr- cr- the, the creators of that uh, of that uh, clique in in Tel Aviv at the time, and. Um, and after his becoming religious, he he still uh, you know kind of looked after those friends. He 
some of his friends um, did not have children who would say Kaddish for them, so he took it upon himself on their yard side, sometimes even through the year, to say Kaddish for them when they passed away. He outlived most of them. Um, so like he had this you know feeling for for the uh, you know the, the people who he was close with, even his ex-wife Ilana Ravina, who was a famous um, uh, actress and singer in, in, in Israeli society in, in the uh, 50, uh, 60s and 70s, and they were married for a couple of years. They got divorced. Um, she moved to England, had a rough life after that. But when she passed away a couple of years ago, so Rizor went to her Levaya and uh, said Kaddish. It was interesting. Um, his his care, his, his uh, you know his understanding and his is of his role. Um, in 1977, he's already 42 years old. He's not a young college student. He officially became religious publicly. In fact, he was influenced by a great, great uh, Torah scholar and, and creative individual, Rabbi Tzach Shleima Zilberman. Today, there's a Zilberman uh, group, community even, in the old city and other parts of Yerushalayim, where they follow his children, continue his legacy. There's a whole community. They are part of the Chor Vashul, which is, it's funny, it's related to Reb Simcha Kuk. Reb Simcha Kuk was affiliated with the Chor Vashul as well. So Reb Yitzhak Shleim Zilberman, who was originally a cipher of Sharich, living in Sharich Hesed, um, he influenced uh, Uri Zohar. Uh, later on, Uri Zohar plays a large, outsized role in the Kirov movement itself. He had a very strong association with Lev Laachem. He uh, essentially was one of the heads of the organization. He was involved in other Kirov organizations, and Hida Brut and others. And did a lot of work with, uh, with um, you know, uh, uh, struggling youth and with even struggling religious youth and, and Kirov and outreach and all all kinds of things like that. A, a amazing, amazing uh, career and a special person, a real tzaddik also. Um, and uh, a lot to say about him and his role in modern Jewish, especially Israeli history. Um, so. Moving along to some Shavuos musings, some associations that I thought of over the last couple of days of the holiday of Shavuos and Jewish history. First of all, what struck me, especially since you know last week we were in Poland and I was discussing it with the group, was that the deportations of Hungarian Jewry during the Holocaust um, took place around Shavuos time. It took place under, in less than two months, 434,000 Hungarian Jews are deported to Auschwitz, the overwhelming majority of whom are gassed upon arrival, and it takes place between May 15th and July 9th. Many of the uh, transports are arriving either on or right around Shavuos, and you'll hear that from many, many survivors and their families, and the yard sites that they observe, Hungarian Jewry is is is, is uh, exterminated right around Shavuos time. And in fact, in survivor neighborhoods after the war in Israel or in the United States, like uh, Williamsburg, Borough Park, and places in the Merkaz in Israel, and, and like B'nai Brak, Tel Aviv, Petach Tikva, those areas, there was, it was almost like uh, Shavuos was worse than Tisha B'Av. Shavuos was like this holiday of, of like a Yom HaShoah. It was like a you know, Holocaust Memorial Day for Hungarian survivors because that's when all their neighbor, uh, their their friends, their families, their parents, their siblings, their spouses, children, yard sites were... That's where they observed it and said Yizkar and Kelmale and everything. Shavuos became this like uh, uh, memorial holiday for Hungarian Jewry uh, and, and in many ways was a tragic holiday. Um, so that's an interesting to note. And what's even, what's another, another even 
also very interesting is that pretty much exactly a year later, almost exactly a year later, in 1945, was liberation. And it was also right around Shavuot's time. Um, I don't know the mystical connection, I'm just pointing out the historical connection. Um, but the liberation, um, you know, the war ends at the end of April, the beginning of May. It's right around, right before Shavuot, rather. And, um, you know, a couple of weeks of just physical re- rehabilitation of these starving, diseased survivors are able to finally um, recuperate. So it was really Shavuot that was a new beginning. Um, Shavuot was the first time many of them made a conscious decision to attend the services, to attend davening, to to either decide for or against participating in religious activity. Uh, so many of them did not, right? So that's that's also an important piece of history. But uh, many of them did. In fact, um, uh, my dear friend and colleague Davi Safir just shared with me a video of uh, Rabbi Do- uh, Dr. J.J. Schachter, um, the son of the famous chaplain, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, um, of him telling a story about his father that he was the U.S. Army chaplain and he was there um, <clears throat> at the, pretty much right after the liberation of Buchenwald. And he stayed there for quite a bit of time assisting the survivors. Here is this Orthodox rabbi who's Yiddish speaking. He was able to help the survivors in a way that almost no one else was capable of doing so. And in Shavuos, he arranged with the U.S. Army that they should uh, um, allocate him a space to uh, have a a davening, a Shavuos Yom Tif davening. This is the first public davening, and he publicized it. There's going to be a davening on Shavuos, and everyone's welcome to join. Of course, anyone who is a U.S. Army soldier who is nominally traditional Orthodox attended, but many survivors did as well. There's even pictures of it, by the way. You can actually see pictures of the service taken by a U.S. Army photographer. And 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 J.J. Schachter repeats the story that his father told him that um, in the middle of this davening, there was a survivor in the back who's who's yelling, to, to whom are you praying? To the God who killed your families, your parents, your your siblings, your spouses, your children. That's who you're praying to. And uh, you know, and it was this you know, very, very disturbing to to you know both to, to hear this shouting and, and, and this obviously troubled individual. And Rabbi Shach didn't know what to say to him, obviously. So he goes to the back and he puts his arm around his shoulder and he holds his hand and doesn't say anything. What could you say? And he um, holds it there until the person calms down. But afterwards, Rabbi Shachter pointed out that this person came to shul to say that. He came to the shul to yell that. He didn't yell it from his barracks. He didn't yell it anywhere else. He came to shul. And that's the idea, is that uh, he, he lived with this emuna, this, this survivor, this belief, that it wasn't the Nazis who killed his family. It was God who killed his family. So this is a... It assumes a deep belief in God's running the world, and at the same time, a lack of understanding, um, a limited capability of human understanding of understanding the why of it, and, and expressing anger about it. But at the same time, he's 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 coming to shul and expressing that belief that that uh, in God and, the, and that he had done done this 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 act that he you know was upset about and and couldn't understand. Um, more recently in Jewish history, you have, um, was the Six-Day War um, ends, we just had this week, in Chaf Ches Iyar, the Yom Yerushalayim. So there's the time where the uh, East, East Jerusalem and the West Bank is occupied by the Israeli army during the Six-Day War. 
and they get the Kaisel back, and everyone's able to go to Daven by the Kaisel. So it took a few days to clear the, you know, clear the area around the Kaisel. There was the Mugrabi neighborhood that was there, the homes that were there, they were cleared away. And the first time the uh, Israeli military allowed civilians to go to Daven at the Kaisel for the first time in 19 years was, um, was, was Shuas. So Shuas night becomes this, this event where everyone goes to the Kaisel. Till today, half of Yerushalayim goes up to, goes to the Kaisel on Shuas night. And I'm sure most of them believe that they're doing it genuinely out of Aliyah Laregel. Of course, none of them go like that on Shavuos or Sukkot. And uh, what they're really celebrating is a, I guess, a Haredi version of Yom Yerushalayim. But don't tell any of them that because then they'll stop going. And it's nice that they're going and davening by the Kaisel and dancing there. It's it's very sweet. Um, so the the um, if we go further back. Um, in Jewish history, we find other tragedies. Uh, of course, Jewish Jewish history, we love focusing on tragedies. So we, we go further back. So the, the Chmelmiski massacres of 1648 and 1649, Tach Vitat, the Xeris Tach Vitat, what's referred to in Jewish history. So it was right around Shuas. It's, it's uh, fascinating. It takes place then also. In fact, the massacre of the Jewish community in Nemerov was so terrible, was so tragic, was so vast, that it became the symbol of the whole time of this, uh, these, these, uh, these murders of, of uh, by Ukrainian Cossacks, of the, the whole revolt that they're doing against the Polish uh, nobility and aristocracy, and the Jews are caught in the crossfire, um, and many of them are killed, many communities are wiped out, so the, the massacre of the Jewish community in Nemerov is seen as a symbol of all of this, and many rabbis of the time uh, commemorate that day, Chaf Sivan, the 20th day of Sivan, as, uh, as the day of mourning, as the day of commemoration. Of course, when a tragedy happens in the Jewish people, so, so it's customary to set aside that day. It's not just Tisha B'Av, it's a day of tragedy. So the Chaf Sivan, the 20th of Sivan, is the day that it happens. So, uh, you know, that's a day that can be commemorated. And, uh, you know, of course, that can happen at other tragedies throughout Jewish history as well. A special day can be commemorated, just like Chav Sivan. So, the, um, so that's, that was right around Shavuos, of course. Chav Sivan is a few days after Shavuos. So the whole time during that time was the uh, main primary massacres of Tach Vitat. If we go even further back, then um, we go to the First Crusade, into the year 1096, in the Rhine River Valley, in the great ancient communities of Ashkenaz, mines and Vermeiza worms and uh, Speyer and Frankfurt, all those all those communities of southern Germany today, and the Rhine River Valley, where the settlement, the early settlement of Ashkenaz was, the First Crusade pretty much wiped it out. Um, that's why Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz Jews have such a small gene pool. That's why we all need glasses and have to take tests before we get married so we don't have genetic diseases and we all have high cholesterol. As we all come from this tiny gene pool because there are almost no survivors of the First Crusade. That is the main event that happens in the Ashkenaz Jewish history is this First Crusade because it almost entirely wipes out the Ashkenaz Jewish world. Um, so, in fact, when we recite many communities, I think most communities recite Kinnis on Tisha B'av, uh, which discusses the First Crusade, 
and one of them dates them. One of them, these ancient, uh, you know, they're, they're written at the time. Then one of them d- dates them. It says this happened on the week of Shavuos. It happens on Rish Chaydesh Sivan. This happened on on Gimel Sivan, the third day of Sivan, literally two days before Shavuos. And one of them even states that the, these great the great Talmudic scholars and the great tzaddikim were killed. So it must be that the week of Shavuos, the week that we receive the Torah, the Torah is returned to heaven because these communities represented the people who who observed the Torah, and now that they're all being killed, so it must be that the Torah is being returned to heaven at the same week that it was given. So it's an explicit uh, reference to the relationship between the holiday of Shavuos and the tragedy of the First Crusade. So it's, it's, I find it fascinating that all of these things happen all right around the same time, separated by centuries and countries and times and, um, and, uh, and all around uh, Shavuos time. In moving along to um, to other other areas of Jewish history and its relationship to Shavuos, not related necessarily to tragedy, um, um, in, it's interesting that the uh, uh, in, on young, different holidays throughout the Jewish season, it was customary in the Hasidic movement for the followers to to go visit the Rebbe, to go spend the Yontif with the Rebbe. So the the I, I I saw recently that in Lubavitch in in uh, in the town the literal town of Lubavitch back when the Lubavitch Rebbe's lived there in Russia so Shavuos was sometimes referred to as the Chag Hamotzim Motz meaning Meiret Tzedek of the rabbis why because the the Chabad Hasidic community had hundreds of rabbis who were communal rabbis across the Russian Empire, across the Pale of Settlement and beyond. Hundreds of rabbis who were members of Chabad, who were, who were followers of the Lubavitcher Rebbes, and who were rabbis to communities, diverse communities all over, and great, great leaders, great uh, great scholars. And when did they have a chance to go to the Rebbe? They couldn't go Sukkot or Pesach because they belong in their communities. There are so many halachic questions around Sukkot and Pesach, and Sukkot is Rosh Hashanah, and Kippur Sukkot, they can't leave. Pesach is loaded with all kinds of questions, and chametz, and selling the chametz, and, 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 and kashering the kalim, and everything. They can't leave. So these dedicated and loyal rabbis would not go to their own rabbi for Sukkot and Pesach. Shavuos, there's not really many halachic questions, so this would be the opportunity for the rabbis to go to, to Lubavitch, so it became to be known as Chag HaMotzim. This is the holiday of the rabbis, because the rabbis got to go to the rabbi on Shavuos. So it was a very special time. And speaking of the Hasidic movement, so the Baal Shem Tev himself passed away on Shavuos. And uh, that became the yard site of the Baal Shem Tev. In fact, until recently, there was a big uh, g- you know, big gathering in Mezhebizh every Shavuos. Now, of course, with the war in Ukraine, it's a bit more challenging. Hopefully, peace will return to the region and uh, and and we'll be able to get back to those tours as well, and and um, and the the so the Baal Shem Tev himself passes away in Shavuos. Someone pointed out once to me the irony that the Baal Shem Tev, who's the Hasidic movement and everything that symbolizes, and he passes away on the holiday of the receiving of the Torah, whereas the Vilna Gaon, who's everything that he symbolizes, passes away in Sukkot which is the Yom Tif of dancing and singing and happiness. 
And it's uh, maybe it's perhaps to symbolize that the differences that we always emphasize are not as different as we imagine them to be. And, and every great Jewish leader contained elements of all aspects of the service of God and just emphasized certain ones which he felt needed emphasis for his followers at his specific time period in history. And there's definitely what to learn from all of them. But the Baal Shem Tov's passing in Shavuos, many attach all kinds of mystical significance to it, and, uh, and, uh, and that definitely has a place in history as well. More recently in the Hasidic movement, the Ger Rebbe, the great leader of Polish Jewry, the Imre Emes, Rabbi Avram Mordechai Alter, um, who is the successor of his father, uh, the Svas Emes, from 1905, he led the Ger community and Polish Jewry um, until 1948, his passing for 43 years during one of the most tumultuous times in Jewish history, and a very dynamic leader, very strong leader in the Polish press. He was known as the King of the Jews, and when he was sought out by the Nazis when they occupied Poland in 1939, they looked for the Wunderabiner, and uh, he he was in danger. He personally was in danger, and he was able to escape at the beginning of the war. He arrives in the Holy Land um, in early 1940, and uh, he's you know, broken with very few family members. Most remained behind. He lost most of his family in the gas chambers in Treblinka, as he did of all of his followers. He did encourage some of his followers to immigrate to Palestine before the war. He himself made five visits to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael before the war which is rare, and I don't think any other Rebbe did five visits. In a 20-year period, he established a yeshiva in Yerushalayim, the first Gary yeshiva in Yerushalayim. In 1924, he established a second one in Tel Aviv, Yeshiva's Chidushi Harim, which still exists in northern Tel Aviv um, till today. And he uh, moves into the one in Yerushalayim, into Yeshiva's Fasemes, where they prepare an apartment for him. And it was kind of a sad state of affairs. This person who had overseen an empire, who had been at the head of every initiative in Poland, in the before of war, Agudas Yisrael, and, and the newspaper, the Siddish Tagblat, and Dafyaimi, he was involved with the Ramir Shapiro, and, and, and he supported Sara Shanir with the Beis Yaakov, and, and uh, he, he, was, he was everywhere and everything. He was the leader. And uh, here at the end of his life, broken, having lost everything um, from the world that had been left behind, um, with barely anything left, and that's how he lived out his last years. And uh, he passed away on Shavuos of 1948, and it was during the war of in, uh, the 1948 War of Independence, and there was a Jordanian shelling of Yerushalayim at the time, and of course also Harazesim was cut off, they were unable to bury him there. They ended up burying him in his courtyard of the yeshiva, which is right opposite the Machane Yehuda Shuk, and I bring all the groups there when we do tours of that area, and it's just like in the middle of, right across from the Shuk, down this little alleyway, you have this you know, in the middle of this urban environment, you have this gravesite of the Ger Rebbe, the great Ger Rebbe. And to make it even more symbolic, they made a replica of his father's Eihel on his kever in Ger in Poland. So it's this red brick which sticks out like a sore thumb against the uh, Yerushalayim white uh, stone backdrop. And the whole facade there, you know, sticks out and it's coming to really, you know, convey a strong message about his leadership of Polish Jewry and his uh, unfortunate passing here. So on Shavuos morning, you see thousands of Gera Hasidim heading over to the, the Shuk area to uh, pay their respects at, uh, at the Gera Rebbe's kever. So 
you have also another interesting um, the um, another interesting aspect was that um, the story of the famous Gerrit Sedek, uh, Graf Pototsky, uh, uh, Vilna, uh, Gerrit Sedek Avraham ben Avraham. So allegedly, his his when he was when he was mar- when he became martyred, he was killed by the church. Uh, he it was uh, it was on the second day of Shavuos, and um, and in the and and the sources at the time, Jewish sources at the time. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Emden and other writers, they write about it. So it seems to have been well known at the time. It's not that it, it's not that uh, it was only discovered later. Um, and in the yeshivas of uh, Lithuanian yeshivas of Eastern Europe, in Valazhin, in Radin, in, in in other places, they would talk about it. The second day Shavuos, there was like this ceremony to relate the story publicly. Rabbi Levinson, who was a student of Valazhin, the Chavetz Chaim Sanalo, would do it every. Every year on the second day Shavuos would tell the whole yeshiva and Rad and the story of Graf Patotsky and the Gerrit Sedek of Ram and Avram. There are good sources for it, and yet there are so many details that are still shrouded in legend. It's very unclear. Some doubt that it happened altogether. Others say it was confused with another story that happened at a similar time period, but not really with that family or or that place or it might be have been a different story. It might be that story. It's it's very confusing, um, but it's definitely part of yeshiva folklore and a very important part of of yeshiva folklore. So, the uh, the uh, the the basis of the story is definitely true, and and uh, we need to still work out the details. There's the role of the Vilna Gaon, who was quite young at the time. He was in his twenties, uh, possibly, uh, depending on what year it actually happened. And uh, and there's the uh, story that that the role that the Vilna Gaon uh, plays in in trying to rescue him and giving him encouragement. In fact, um, the the Gertzedek of Ram and of Ram um, supposedly said that uh, he's he's broken. He he left everything behind. He you know we go to the Patatsky estate in Lansut, um, right behind the old shul. Before we go to the cover of Ramaftali of Rapshitz, who's buried in Lansa. So there's the Patatsky estate, which is this massive, beautiful, incredibly large estate. Of course, today in in in, in back Lawrence or Tom's River, you have big estates too. But for that time, this was considered a massive estate and a huge palace. And uh, and he and this is what he gave up. He gave up everything. He was the heir to this, and he gave it all up. Um, to become a Jew, and he thought he would establish a family, get married, have children, start a new life, and here he's being killed. So he expressed his disappointment that he has no past and he has no future. He lost everything on both sides. He's being cut off on both sides. And the Vilna Gain encouraged him, and he said to him, he says that it's, it says in the Pasuk, Anihu Rishain, Vanihu Achrain, Umi Baladai Ein Kim. I am the first, I am the last. And there's no one else but me, so says God. Um, so, so the Vilna Gaon says to him, "Anihu Risha in Lamisha in Leav, Vanihu Achra in Lamisha in Leben, Omi Balada in Kim. I am the first to those who don't have a father or a parent. Anihu Achra, and I'm the I'm the last for those who don't have children. Omi Balada in Kim. You don't need anything else. You have God with you. You're completely one with the one above." With God, with uh, there's no you know, you're worried that you don't have a past or a future, 
you're one with me, which is a you know term, you know very inspirational. We also go on our trips to Vilna. We go to the main town square of Vilna where the uh, the uh, public execution took place. What's also interesting about Shavuos in Jewish history, in modern Jewish history, is how um, Shavuos traditionally is a celebration of the receiving of the Torah, but that is only from the time of of where it's you know it's it's cited in Chazal in in the Gemara in Shas, in the Torah itself it's discussed primarily as an agricultural holiday, celebration of the harvest, uh, a Bikurim bringing Bikurim. The, the wheat harvest uh, comes from the Eimer, which was the barley harvest of the wheat harvest, and then that's how it's discussed in in the Megillus Rus, which we, which we read on Shavuos as well. And so, how does it evolve from an agricultural holiday to a celebration of the Torah? And there's a simple historical reason for that, because the during the time of the Beis Hamikdash, the main event is the bringing the carbon of the Shteilechem. The main event is the bringing Bikurim to the Beis Hamikdash. All of that is agriculture and all that is service in the Beis HaMikdash. Of course, when there's no Beis HaMikdash, there's no Karbanes, there's no Jews, pretty much very few Jews living in the land of Israel, and they're not engaged in agriculture anymore, and there is no none of all that, so then we revert to the celebration of the Torah, which took place on that day, and that becomes the emphasis. So that's that's obvious. I think that's... that's I don't, believe it's well known as well. But what it's interesting to me is that the secular kibbutzim in the early days of the kibbutz movement during the third aliyah uh, attempt to bring it back as a secular holiday celebrating the harvest. They attempt to bring back the old holiday in a very secular fashion. Fascinating story. There are videos of it on YouTube. There's articles about it. It's a really interesting story. Um, in the in the kibbutzim of Emek Israel, later sp- spreads to urban places in Tel Aviv, Haifa, and the Karen Kayemet Israel. They put themselves instead of the Beis Hamikdash, bringing the Bikurim. There's these Tekes Havaat Bikurim, which existed in Israel from the 1920s, which was still Palestine, till the 1960s, and then it kind of petered out. Um, I just so recently saw a video of Menachem Musishkin, who's the head of the KKL, the Karen Kayemet Israel, presiding over one of these ceremonies in Tel Aviv. And there's thousands of children all all you know dressed up, and they bring these baskets of produce from the harvest, and it's bringing bikurim from there. And they even had a ceremonial kain, the uh, also a secular kain, a, a, a Jewish uh, one of the modern Hebrew writers. He's an elderly man at the time, Alexander Ziskin Rabinovich Azar, and uh, he was at this impressive uh, ceremony in Tel Aviv in the 1930s. And they make this is a as a as a new type of holiday, bringing back the old Bikurim uh, in, a, in a secular fashion uh, as an attempt to uh, you know, secularize the holiday. And also, as a saying that you know, it's not a celebration of the Torah, it's, it's going back to the biblical celebration, which is agricultural, and therefore to, uh, to give it that flavor as well. Um, so that's an interesting uh, tidbit too. So this was some musings in Jewish history and Shavuos. And I will hopefully get back to regular episodes regularly and consistently for a full, exciting summer of Jewish history soundbites right after Shavuos. Have a wonderful yantif. This is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudi.yehudigeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean 
or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.